Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a week in IndyCar show leading into this weekend's IndyCar Grand Prix in Indianapolis. Then move into practice qualifying the Indy 500. It is going to be a fast, fast sprint through the month of May. Have our guests, Lee Diffie, our good pal from NBC Sports. Lee will be the man calling all the action at the GP and the 500. Just He's going to be our primary voice for everything that is happening and being broadcast by NBC for the very first time in its entirety at Indianapolis. We're then joined and closed the show with Chris Windham, USAC star sprint car racing monster, who will be returning to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to try and make the field for the Freedom 100 Indy Lights race, competing with Bilardi Auto Racing and also the Bird Family Racing Program. Had a crash last year prior to the uh, qualifying and race. It damaged the chassis, unable to participate. But knowing how this is, yet again, the most recent example of a short track, dirt track star coming to the Speedway, trying to show the world that, hey, this lineage going back to day one still exists, still valuable, and really hoping that Chris makes an impact there and maybe can go on to expand his presence in Indy Lights and maybe come back for an Indy 500 in the very near future. A couple of quick notes. We're going to be holding a live podcast on the Cooper Tire stage this Friday between free practice two and qualifying. It's going to be done on the Cooper stage in the infield midway, the vendor midway. If you happen to know the general location of the Pagoda in the media center right next to it, it's directly behind the media center a couple hundred feet, or it's adjacent to the parking lot where all the teams park their transporters and go in and out of Gasoline Alley. So I'm going to do that there at the Cooper Tire stage from 245 to 315. 1986 Indy 500 winner Bobby Rahal are going to have two-time Indy 500 winner Al Unser Jr. from the Harding Steinbrenner Racing Team. He's also celebrating the 25th anniversary of his second and final Indy 500 with the Beast in 1994. Three-time Indy 500 pole sitter Ed Carpenter will be our guest. And finally, we close with Harding Steinbrenner Racing's young beast himself, Colton Herta. So with a really packed day, actually packed event, two-day event, this half-hour window is about all we could find. So we're hoping you'll come out and enjoy that. Really cool thing, too, as I have been mentioning in recent episodes, we're now in the month of May, which means it is the third anniversary of when we launched this little podcast at Indianapolis back in 2016. Thanks to our amazing partners at Cooper Tires and also the Justice Brothers. We're going to have some awesome things to give away for those of you in attendance this month at the Speedway. And in particular, starting off this Friday at the live show. So Cooper has made a large number of T-shirts to give away. They commissioned our pal Roger Warwick, who does all my various cartoons and poster art and whatnot. They commissioned Roger to do a third anniversary design which features just about every indy 500 winner we've had on the show some of the legends too uh it's a really cool it's really cool t-shirt i have to thank them it's amazing so they will be giving those away and there are quite a few to give away definitely limited supply though so got to be there to get one so we're hoping to see you again friday 245 to 315 in the vendor midway in the infield and our pals at the Justice Brothers as well have made some weak and IndyCar keychains. 
that I cannot wait to see and get my hands on and pass those out too. So again, looking forward to seeing you here. Don't know if we're going to be able to do a second live podcast once we get closer to the 500 itself, but I'm exploring what opportunities might exist. But nonetheless, this could be the one and only for the month. So I really do hope to see you there. And all courtesy of Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, we're going to send you home with some cool stuff they've done to celebrate you. And thank you for listening. Toronto Motorsports, our pals there as well, remind you that they're doing a pop-up shop the day before the 8500, that being Saturday, May 25th, right behind the Pagoda in the pavilion there at the Indy 500 memorabilia show. It's going to be just a jamboree of awesome original t-shirts, stickers, you name it. I think Robin Miller and myself will be there, I don't know, signing stuff, cleaning up, uh, polishing stuff, who knows? We'll be there. Hope to see you nonetheless, torontomotorsports.com, all the really cool stuff they do for IndyCar, IndyCar fans, just to give us stuff that it's unique and interesting and definitely stands out in a crowd. Last couple of quick things to mention. Going to be launching it. I'm not sure if it's going to be next week. Probably needs to be next week uh, as we get closer to qualifying. Still working on the exact timing, but I have been capturing and producing what is going to be my main feature for the month of May. Normally I do some sort of big written piece, lots of words, lots of voices in it. Shifting that up a little bit, there will be a written component to it. But back at Long Beach, I started capturing something that is tentatively titled How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500. This is all in honor of the 2019 race being the 50th anniversary of RP's debut in the team's debut at Indianapolis. Although they did not compete at Indy consecutively for what will be now 50 years, obviously there was that little thing called the split. Uh, we're looking at someone who has won 17 Indianapolis 500s. Obviously they are the reigning Indy 500 winners with willpower, but this is just an organization that has been at Indianapolis for almost half of the race's existence and has fundamentally altered almost every aspect of how their rivals compete, how the race is officiated, standards, practices, presentation, vehicles, partners, everything about the Indy 500 changed when Roger Penske and his team arrived in 1969. So to explore this, to celebrate the captain and all that has been achieved, completed 10 interviews so far, uh, sat down with RP himself spent a good good long time with Uncle Bobby, Bobby Unser. Uh, Rick Mears spent more than an hour on the phone with him. Uh, renowned chief mechanic and team manager Chuck Sprague. Jade Gerse, who wrote The Beast about their 1994 win with the amazing stock block Mercedes-badged Ilmore engine. Spoke with Paul Ray from Ilmore. John Booslog, a.k.a. Myron who started there in his teens and has just really been a part of the family for so, so long. Spoke with Alan Sir Jr., uh, Elio Castro Neves. have a few more folks on the list to capture. Robin Miller is one of them. Going to sit down with Mario Andretti. Our friend Steve Shunk, a bit of a PR and communications expert who knows from that side how the team has really changed that game as well. Tim Sindrick is on the list. I believe Gilda Farron will be in there. Also spoken with a couple of rivals 
who share some thoughts on how Penske has changed the game in reaction to what they do, that being Mike Hull from Chip Ganassi Racing, Zach Brown from McLaren, and hoping to sit down with Bobby Rahal as well to complete that. So, uh, And then just this morning, added a conversation with the amazing Nigel Bennett, designer of two or three, if not more, of Roger Penske's Indy 500 winning chassis. Altogether, we'll see how many of this turns out to be, 15, 16-something interviews, but really wanted to do something proper and in-depth on this 50th anniversary. So I'm going to roll that out and really hoping that you not only enjoy it, but, man, talk about some great stories, some great insights, some great quotes. Uh, The Bobby Unser episode, I'll just warn you ahead of time, if you know Uncle Bobby, you know that that is a feral animal of a man. He is uncaged, unswayed by convention. He uses a lot of words that are certainly not welcome in church, and it's hilarious. Uh, the part, <laughs> Let's just say that one phrase he uses in relation to his teammate Rick Mears just had my eyes watering and rolling in the back of my head. It's classic Uncle Bobby, though. So anyways, working on this, how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500, a pretty in-depth podcast series that I will also spin out into some written content for you as well with some of the finer quotes. So that's the other thing I've been working away on here behind the scenes. All right, let's get to the questions you have sent in for Lee Diffie, and then we're going to follow with Chris Windham, and I will close at the end with lots of questions you have sent in for me, plenty of intrigue about IndyCar's future engine formula to hybrid or not to hybrid. There's a Porsche question or two. There's all kinds of great stuff. So thanks again for sending in all the questions for me on the Weekend IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Lee Diffie, it is always a mighty fine day on the Weekend IndyCar when we have you here. Why? Well, you're an old pal, first of all, so that makes it easy. And second, based on the volume of questions, Folks seem to like you, too. So maybe you're just going to have to get used to the fact that people don't hate you as much as, well, as maybe they should. But at least in theory for this week's episode, you've gotten a lot of nice questions. Oh, that's good. (laughs) That's a relief. Thanks for having me back on, and and, uh, thank you to everybody who who wrote the questions. So before we get started with those questions, as we're going to preview the month of May a little bit, got the Indy GP this weekend on NBC Sports, Indy 500, Mm -hmm on NBC for the very first time in, I don't know, is it forever? I wasn't alive at a point in time uh, when NBC might have done that. But anyways, pretty amazing stuff coming up for you as well. Before we get to those questions, though, I know you're not ready to unveil exactly what it is, but as someone who loves doing positive things and good things, charitable things, I know you've been working in the background on something to help someone that means a lot to us. What can you tell us, even if you can't pull back all the covers yet? Yeah, I just, I, I really, um, you know, like like so many uh, motorsports fans, not only here in North America, but around the world, I was really struck by Robert Wickens, just the person he is, and uh, when he was driving, how incredibly talented and gifted he was and then equally after his accident in Pocono last year just how driven the guy is how determined that there is just he you know he is just so motivated 
that to walk again and to drive again and to you know to you know get back to as close as he can to where he was and I'm just I'm so moved by him um I'm not super tight with him or super friendly with him I see him I say hello we converse uh in a professional way uh, you know so I can't call him a mate of mine but I want to do something for him um you know, uh, we've spoken about it before that over the years, uh, Steve Matchett, David Hobbs uh, and myself, we do theatre shows, live theatre shows uh, around the country. It was always with a Formula One theme. The last one we did last November uh, in Connecticut was a kind of a more all-round motorsport um, night. You know, we raised money for Robert there and, and, and donated that money uh, through the Sam Schmidt Foundation. Um, separate to that, you know, I, I just, it just keeps eating away at me. I feel like I haven't done enough for him, you know. And so my catchphrase that I use in race calls, you know, uh, not every race, but quite often is it's time to bring the action. And um, so I've got, I've made some stickers up. I've had some three and a half round stickers made up with my catchphrase on it. And I'm going to sell them. Uh, I haven't worked out how or when or where yet, but, you know, I want to try and raise $10,000. So I've made 2,000 of these stickers uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let, the world know on my social media accounts when it's ready to go uh but i want to you know it would it would it would feel good to to write robert a check for 10 grand towards you know the 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 um the adjustments that need to be made to his house in indy uh for him uh to get around you know for sure there's been some big bills and and you know ten thousand dollars is a drop in the ocean but at least there's something that's my goal anyway so yeah I'd, i'd like to get that going here sooner rather than later well, good on you, mate, for doing that. Robert is somebody that I'm just constantly amazed how, heck, just a little over a year ago in IndyCar, in North American racing, by and large, Robert was a new name, a mystery to so many. And in just such a short amount of time, everyone saw and quickly realized this is world-class amazing caliber of talent holy cow this guy is not only a future indycar champion but it's not going to take too long for him to get there and then we also learn he's just a pretty darn amazing guy just a really phenomenal human being in addition to being a highly talented race car driver kind of got to hate him for that uh but all kidding aside pretty amazing guy so to go through what he's gone through to have a lot of people step up you now wanting to continue to help I think that's pretty phenomenal. So count me in to help however I can to uh, promote it, buy some, uh, maybe folks, if they want to, whenever you get ready to sell them, um, who knows, there's probably something really embarrassing I can do in exchange for folks buying these. So uh, we can come up with some good stuff. Well, let's get going, my friend. I know you are very busy heading into the quick Friday, Saturday indie grand prix that we have going on here myself as well i'm on a plane here very shortly and can't wait i'll be in indianapolis once i get on that plane on thursday through may 27th so yeah uh, i don't know i think i become an official citizen of uh, indiana with that amount of time spent there let's get going here though looking at both the gp and the indy 500 we're going to start off with our pal jordan darwin who says lean mp will we see a full-time IndyCar regular on the sidelines after bump day again this year. Jordan referencing James Hinchcliffe, who missed the show last year, says given their rough start to running their in-house car, does McLaren 
have any concerns going into May. I, I can lead off with that, Lee, if you want to take uh, take the baton afterwards. I spent a lot of time, Jordan, in the McLaren pit during the Indy Open test here towards the end of April. And I'm going to end up writing about this here shortly in some form of month of May primer. I would not, by any means, assign expectations to Fernando Alonso and that team's performance based on the name McLaren and their history at Indianapolis Motor Speedway or their world championship winning efforts elsewhere in the world of motorsports. This is McLaren. This is a team with means and resources and talent. At least for what I saw, this is a very new and not completely oiled operation. Will it become so before we get to qualifying? I think so. But I am not going in after seeing just a lot of the teething issues, a lot of the team having to figure out not just who does what. Everybody knows each other's roles, obviously, Lee, but quality, aptitude. I've heard there might have been at least one person if not, I don't know if there's more, but I've heard of at least one person in terms of personnel that won't be back after the test. So just keep in mind that this is a team, despite McLaren being this overarching halo brand, this is still very much a brand new entity having to get up to speed with a two-time Formula One world champion that probably could have won on his debut. But none of those things really mean anything if the team itself is still figuring out how to become the best it can be in just what, Lee? We hit track for practice uh, next Tuesday. There's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday, they get the extra boost to prepare for qualifying. Then we go straight in Saturday. There's not a lot of time for McLaren to really try and become uh, equal with many of the other teams they're going up against. And this, this is, a, this is a, a wonderful example which we try and uh, try and tell on the broadcast as often. But this is, a, again, another wonderful example about how motorsport truly is a team sport. The drivers, and, and understandably and justifiably so, get all the majority of the attention. But it's when you see examples like this that you really realise just how much of a team sport it is. And I think it, to put it in a nutshell... Uh, you know, to follow on from your statement about expectations, uh, I was talking with Zach Brown at Long Beach. Uh, at Long Beach, I'm, I'm sure you were too when the when the Chinese Formula One Grand Prix was going on at the same time. But anyway, he had he had meetings to to conduct and get ready for for the month of May. So um, he's a busy guy, but he said to me, "This is a lot different than just cutting a check for Michael Andretti and Andretti Autosport." <laughs> he said, there's a lot going on. And I said, yeah, I, I imagine there is. And so if we look at Anton Julian, brother of Scott Dixon's championship winning crew chief player, Julian, Anton is a phenomenal crew chief, chief mechanic, etc. We know that car is going to be prepared to an absolutely peerless standard. We know the great and lovable Andy Brown, who has many Indy 500 championship or championship Indy 500 winning rings on his fingers. We know he is a race engineer is just phenomenal at what he does. There's just gobs of talent within this team. As we have seen in many other forms of sport though, Lee, 
uh, Lakers from time to time, the Boston Celtics. We can run down many. Heck, my Golden State Warriors right now that are uh, not looking too strong in the NBA uh, playoffs against the Houston Rockets. You can load a team with talent, but if they do not know how to play together and get the most out of each other, doesn't matter how many all-stars you have. So the McLaren team, I would say, brand new with this Indy 500 effort. It just takes time for them to learn, gel, become that effective unit. The question we're going to be looking at here starting next week, can they do it in four days of practice leading into qualifying? That's the big thing we're going to be tracking. Super amount of pressure. Unbelievable amount of pressure. So, um, yeah. I wish them luck, um, and I and I hope that they're not a headline for the wrong reason. Let's go to Brett Ross Lee, who says, "Lee, what is your best Robin Miller story? How about Dorsey Schrader? Are your kids interested in racing? And it's great to hear you both on IndyCar and sports car broadcasts on NBC." I disagree uh, with the last who statement. That, who, 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 who wrote that question? Brett Ross. Okay, Brett, thanks very much. Uh, it's really good to be back on sports cars because it feels like going home. I did I did Grand Am and ALMS for 10 years on speed and, and uh, then had six years away from it totally, you know, while I was doing F1 and other things. So to go back to sports cars and, and to be with my old my old pal, Calvin Fish, uh, it just, it, you know, it just feels like home. And uh, I'm really proud of AJ Armendinger. I think he slipped into the broadcasting role very well has some good insights and, and he's just a, he's a good, good, good young fella to be around. And I've known him since he was a teenager. So that's been really fun. Um, best Robin Miller story was once when we were doing uh, the Brazilian IndyCar Grand Prix, we didn't go, we weren't on site. We had to call it out of um, uh, Indianapolis um, and out of, out of the production studio in Indy, just down the road from just around the corner from the speedway, actually. And, uh, and Robin said, don't have any lunch today. Don't have any lunch today. I'll bring you lunch. And we were like, oh, yeah, what's, 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 what's it going to be like? Because we know what Robin's diet's like. So anyway, he very generously, he bought a truckload of, of hamburgers and onion rings and French fries from his favorite, one of his favorite eateries in Indianapolis called the Mug and Bun. And, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've had it too, mate, but, uh, it wasn't the best, but it was, uh, it, it was a tradition and I appreciated that. Uh, so that was one of my favorite Robin Miller stories. Um, and Dorsey Schrader is a circus unto himself. Working with him for a decade was just hilarious. Um, he's such a good dude. Um, Lives a split life between the Florida Keys and Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. He's got more stories than a book um, and has just done some of the craziest things in life and in racing and uh, prone to a little bit of exaggeration. Um, and, and, uh, but just a great guy. And I spent a lot of time with him, not only at the track, but, but at both of his homes in the Lake, in the, in Lake of the Ozarks and in the Keys. And, uh, just a real cool old school racer, um, you know. Would wouldn't wouldn't fit the corporate mold these days, um, you know. Would, he he wouldn't he wouldn't make it as a modern day racer, I think, because he would just be. Yeah, he just he just wouldn't fit that template. But but what a guy! What what a great guy! Just there was never 
there was never a shortage of laughs with Dorsey. Usually they were at his expense. But, uh, yeah, I miss, I miss working with Dorsey. Would say, Brett, if you get a chance, check out our somewhat new marshallpruittpodcast.com site. And in the top right with the little magnifying glass, little search function, type in Dorsey's name. I think I have three podcasts with him. One kind of a life and career, one about his all-time famous Dale Earnhardt IROC story, and another one dedicated to Dorseyisms, something that uh, our awesome pal Rick the Rat, Rick Ratajak, he uh, was entrusted to keep the list of all of Dorsey's malapropisms and other just silliness that he spoke over the many years on speed, uh, <laughs> speed, various sports car broadcasts. So yeah, um, I would check that out for sure. Brett, he also asked Lee, are your kids interested in racing? That's a, that's been a, um, a, that's been a tougher nut to crack than I thought. I haven't pushed them. Um, they do, uh, at the moment they're in track and field. They do wrestling in the winter. Um, they, they love going go-karting, but, and they know, they, they know certain people. So they know who, uh, Daniel Ricardo is. They, uh, they, they really like Joseph Newgarden and Will Power in IndyCar. They know who, uh, they like Chase Elliott in NASCAR, but you know, if, if the racing's on, they'll, you know, they'll, like if I'm home on a Sunday, which is very rare, but, you know, if I'm watching something that I've DVR'd, they might sit for a few minutes and watch it with me and then they, they go off and do what they want to do. So I haven't, I haven't, to answer your question, I haven't, you know, been like, you must watch this, come and sit here with Dad and watch this entire race. So I'm just seeing, you know, I'm kind of hoping one day they'll ask a few more questions and, you know, they certainly know the difference between an Indy car, a Formula One car and a NASCAR, but... Um, that's probably about as far as it goes. So to say, are they into it? I'd have to say no, but they do have a general level of understanding and awareness. Well, clearly the threats have not been sufficient enough. You ain't no kid of mine. Get out of my house. Exactly. You know, but they're, they're, they're still young. You've got time. Uh, Doug Knopp says, Hey guys, with continued rumors of Pocono potentially not returning again, what tracks on the East coast or Northeast specifically can you see potentially returning? <clears throat> he says Richmond, VIR, the Glen, Dover. I uh, don't know if it would be better with the newer cars or not. Any others? As it is, I can only go to Pocono yearly. If I lose that uh, without an addition, I may not be going to another race for a while. And he says, because I hate this phrase more than anything, so thanks for using it. He says, hashtag me personally. I'd like to see Richmond and the Glen both be added I know, Doug, that I spoke with Michael Printup, the president of Watkins Glen here, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, because I had heard a rumor about IndyCar possibly returning to the Glen, and he said, no, we'd love for that to happen, but no, that's not in the works. Richmond's the one that we've been hearing about for a little while. I believe IndyCar president Jay Fry has gone on the record saying that they are talking. They hope to see if that could happen. As is always the case with this stuff, Lee, as you know, it's not a case. It's no longer a case of IndyCar saying, hmm, where should we go because it interests us? It's what is the right commercial package and offering that we can find that would fit our series. So knowing that a proper sanction fee or co-promotion arrangement, something, there has to be the financial side, Doug, that makes sense so that IndyCar can 
hopefully generate a profit, generate more income. And I know that Mark Miles has been fairly steadfast in saying that as this happens and we can add more races and hopefully the income for going and doing those races is greater, the leader circle funding would increase. I don't know if we've actually seen those numbers increase at all, but at least we've been told that's the hope. So when it comes to picking one of the various tracks you've mentioned, again, it's very much a case of not where we think would be the best. I mean, to me, I've been saying this for a while, VIR with IndyCars, come on, Diffie, that'd be the best thing in the history of the world. That would be unbelievable. I I think, so I'm with you 100% on Richmond. Uh, I love, I've, I've, commentated nascar at richmond loved it i've gone there as a fan loved it uh, i took my late father there many years ago we had an awesome night just sitting in the stands i'm a f- big fan of richmond international uh as far as the road courses are concerned in the south two two are on my bucket list on my wish list that one is vir and the the track president uh slash manager the guy who makes it all happen kerrigan smith is a really good friend of mine He's an awesome guy, does great work there, and it's just a – do you know Tom Christensen, the first time TK went there, he said this is one of the best tracks I've ever been to in the world. So if a nine-time Le Mans 24-hour winner says that, you've got to listen. And, I mean, for all of us who have been going there for many, many years, we've known that for a long time. But IndyCars there, I think, would rock. The other one is Road Atlanta. I would love <laughs> to see IndyCars at Road Atlanta. <laughs> well, first of all, I should mention that our cat Rocky, who some of you might know, uh, a sticker done with Rocky was actually worn by our pal Zach Veach on his helmet during last year's Sonoma IndyCar season finale. Rocky's decided to jump up on the table here in the office and start grooming the microphone. So it won't be long <laughs> before we hear him meow because he wants to be fed. Uh, Richmond, I'd love to go back to because it's the site of the one and only pole position that was ever earned with me as a part of an IndyCar team. That would have been, I think, 2001 in the good old Indy Racing League with Jacques Lazier as the pilot in our Sam Schmidt Motorsports Delara uh, Oldsmobile on Firestones. So, yeah, it was a fun little just personal thing of, hey, that's a one race where I actually contributed towards something meaningful. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> there's another thing, too, I'll just throw in quickly. We're talking fantasy, and it's purely fantasy, Doug. I would love to see some sort of off-season VIR, what we now call Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, a.k.a. MoSport, and Road Atlanta, and probably a second visit to Road America as the four-race, all-time insanity IndyCar jamboree. Those tracks are so fast and potentially frightening and filled full of risk and speed uh, we would find out which drivers would just not be able to withstand <laughs> the oh my god type intensity uh, needed to lap those places. I'm not saying they're all in a perfect state of accepting Indy cars from a safety standpoint either. I'm just saying when I'm thinking of insane, brutal speeds, rolling hills, and you name it, yeah, those four, it would be. It'd be ridiculous, too ridiculous maybe to happen, but at least I have these fantasies in my head. We'll close here that Doug also says, Lee, can't wait to hear you in the NBC broadcasting team at the 500. Let's move on to Robert Northway, who says, Hey, guys, as my wife and I will be attending our first IndyCar race this weekend, 
They're rather excited. Robert asks, what memories do you guys have from your first IndyCar race? And also, is there any recommended viewing spots at the Indy GP track? I'll take the last question, Lee, and then why don't you take the first one about thoughts or memories from your sure, first race. Sure. I would say, Robert, uh, I know you got some recommendations as well from other folks on our Facebook page saying to get up super high in the grandstands. Not a bad idea, but I would also recommend considering the viewing mounds down in around turns one, two, three, and such. Uh, there's some pretty good stuff in there. It's fun to walk around. You can see quite a bit. Also tends to be a place where a little bit of contact, a little bit of Calvin Fish's patented, patented RG Bargy takes place. The viewing mounds, they do a really good job there. And that's something that I really enjoy about the Indy GP layout. Very fan-friendly in that regard. So don't just consider a grandstand seat as a way to go. It's kind of a walking track if you're on the infield. So something where have a backpack, have some sort of expanding chair, you know, camping chair, whatever you can bring, maybe something to roll around with some drinks. But just consider that it might be fun to actually go from corner to corner and just pull up a lawn chair and enjoy yourself. What about memories from your first IndyCar race, Lee? Well, I was very lucky to go to the Service Paradise race in 1992. So the inaugural race was 91. Unfortunately, I didn't get to there, but I I went the next year in 92 uh, with a good mate of mine. And we sat. We got great tickets. We sat on the start finish line and um, got to see the podium Typically, in that Service Paradise race, no matter whether it was earlier in the year or later in the year, it always rained, right? Uh, we had to we had to go through a, a big rain shower. And at the end, when it finished, the podium was uh, Rick Mears, M.O., and Bobby Rahal. So that was a pretty cool podium for my first IndyCar race. And, um, you know, it was less than an hour from my home in Brisbane, which was pretty awesome. So um, really happy memories. And I just... You know, the speed, the sound, the, the noise, the, the names. Uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, I was, from that point on, I was hooked. I'll mention because it makes me feel old, but it also makes me giggle. I still have the VHS video cassette of my recording of the inaugural surfers race in 1991, won by John Andretti. So it's it's somewhere in the closet here in my office, but... Maybe I should dig that sucker out and just enjoy it here uh, at some point in the uh, in the future here because, you know, I've also heard that if you don't watch these things uh, in time, they might just fade away and you might lose everything that's on those lovely well, you know, you know what VHS I've, tapes. You know what I've been doing lately, mate? Actually, not lately. I've been doing it for about over a year now. I, do, I, try, I don't do it every week. I don't get around to it every week, but certainly every month. I will take anywhere between five to ten VHSs, and I and I found a local store uh, in my hometown that'll do it. They do it for about fifteen bucks a tape, and they will digitize it for you, and then they just send it to you in a Dropbox. And I've been going through all my old motorsport VHSs, clearing out the basement, clearing out boxes, and just putting them on hard drives. So I and and I'm I've been surprised at how well the VHS tapes have lasted. But now to have them in a digital format where where I'll never lose them is is pretty cool. So put that on your to-do list, Mr. Marshall Pruitt. Now I need to get another job to pay for that because I I genuinely have (laughs) hundreds of them. I was a complete motor racing VHS recording hoarder. 
in the 1980s and 1990s. So, yeah. All right. Uh, I guess I have a new goal of needing to find another job. Uh, let's see. <laughs> we'll go to John Hankins, who says, got two for you, Lee. He says, A, are you nervous about calling the Indy 500 for the first time? And also, what was your favorite event to call or cover during the Winter Olympics and why? Um, no, not nervous. Um, I don't don't really get nervous uh, around broadcasts um, for the fact of doing the broadcast. You don't get nervous. You you get you place expectations on yourself. Um, I to be to be absolutely transparent. I'm just so excited, and I don't typically get too excited about things either. Uh, um, you know, after all the years, but I am genuinely excited. Uh, this is a career milestone for me. Um, there has never been an Australian call the Indianapolis 500 for the U.S. audience. Uh, I'm very proud of that fact. Um, and as many of you know, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, I'm a proud American as well. Um, so, no, not nervous, just really excited. And, and um, I, you know, I, I want it to be tomorrow. Um, I've been doing a ton of prep and uh, I've really enjoyed going back through um, – uh, watching older races and and the, the more modern ones in recent years, um, you know, because when you do a race of that distance, it allows you. There's all the hype at the beginning and the start and everything, and then, but because it's a it, it's a good chunk, a 500 mile race, it allows you to get into some good storytelling, um, and then, you know, the way that the the story of the race unfolds. Um, I'm just, um, you know, I, I really want it to be tomorrow. Not that I don't want to do the Grand Prix this weekend or, or, or pole day, um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm that, I'm that excited about doing it. And I know that, um, you know, my my colleagues at NBC are as well. And to go back to a point you made earlier, Marshall, about NBC's involvement, it is actually the first time that NBC has done it. There was only ever one television broadcaster in 54 years, and that was ABC. So for us to have it is massive, not just for us IndyCar regulars, but for the company um, and for the NBC Sports Group. Uh, it's huge. And the buzz the buzz around the company uh, is incredible. Um, just just a, as an aside, um, it, we have made, we being NBC Sports Group, have made a documentary, a film about Mario Andretti. Uh, it's called Drive Like Andretti. It premieres this Saturday, May 11, at 2 p.m. Eastern. And I've been fortunate enough because I've been doing a little bit of work with Mario and 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 with promoting the film. Um, I've been I've been fortunate enough to to see it. It's already it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It goes back to Mario's um, uh, birth town. It goes back to the refugee camp that Mario and Aldo and his 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 family lived in. Um, it go, it goes right back right throughout his whole life. And Mario is. Um, so proud of it, and he's he's been blown away by it. He said nobody's ever done anything like this for him in his career, and the end product is terrific. Not just because he's you know a motor racing legend and icon, um, but because it's in a, as, or it's about racing. It's actually a wonderful human story, and just his the the, the way that it uh, details his life and career is is just fantastic. So. A um, little bit of a little bit of a plug there. Sorry about that, but uh, it just popped into my head, and I thought I'd mention it because it. I want so many people to see it because it's so good. No, that's a that's great, and B, I'm hoping we're working on having the producer Matt Allen 
on the podcast here to talk about it, knowing that he's a Emmy award winning, just a phenomenal talent in creating such things like this. Hoping to get a little bit of a deeper insight about that here shortly. John also asked about your favorite event to call or cover during the winter Olympics. So I've done, uh, John, I've done two winter, winter games. Um, my first was in, in Sochi in Russia back in 2014. And then I was at Pyeongchang in South Korea last year. Um, and I've done the same events both times. So uh, you don't get to pick. <laughs> you don't get to choose. Uh, you get told uh, which events you're going to work on. And um, when I first joined NBC seven years ago, um, our big boss, uh, Sam Flood, he just said, listen, you know, you call races. That's that's what you do. And so I'm going to throw a lot of different races at you that may not necessarily be motor racing. So get ready to call races. And so that's why I do track and field. I've done rowing, um, you know, all the different types of motorsport I've done. About the only non-racing thing I do is rugby. So at the to get back to your question, at the Winter Olympics, I call racing there as well, which is the downhill, which is the, uh, the sliding event. So I do bobsled, skeleton and luge. And um, boy, I'll tell you what, when I first started doing it, it took a lot to get your head around because the runs are over in less than a minute. And so, and you've, so you've got to set up the story of each athlete. You've got to call the actual race and you've got to share that call with, with your, your partner. So, um, on, on luge, I, I commentate with an Olympian and, uh, a world cup gold medalist, a guy called, uh, um, Duncan Kennedy, uh, DK is a great guy and, uh, just lives for luge and, um, in bobsled, I call it with a guy called uh, Mr. Bobsled, John Morgan, who's known all around the world as Mr. Bobsled, uh, fantastic guy. And then Bree Scharf is an Olympian in bobsled, but she was also a regular World Cup competitor in skeleton. So I call skeleton with Bree. And just to, um, you know, just to be sitting alongside legends of the sport and pick their brain and listen to the stories um, is really cool. So I can't, John, I wish I could give you more examples or tell you which was my favourite. Um, you know, my favourite of those three is is wherever we get the best story. I mean, the bobsleds are just mental. You know, they're doing 90 miles an hour down the hill and they just thunder. They make the whole sliding centre rumble. And then, then you've got the, the nimble, swift, you know, the skeletons going head first down the down the down the hill at you know 80 85 miles an hour head first you hear this you hear their helmets you know the the, the facial part you know down near their chins scraping on the ice at 80 wow. miles an hour going, going down head first i mean it's mental it's absolutely mental and then you got the luge uh guys and girls who, who are going down feet first but you, they can't see where they're going because if you need if you're going to go as fast as you can go you got to lay back, right? So they mem- they visualize and memorize the track, and it's all about g forces and 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 you know just using that energy and your lines and the pressures and and then you know you're steering with your feet and so many intricacies to it. But um, my my life and background in motorsport was really handy, uh, has been handy um, for for those you know for those, that form of racing. Uh, there's actually a lot of parallels, so it's it's been a blast. So when you're sitting in there calling these events with Olympic gold medal winners, do you ever tell them, hey, you know, when I, in my youth, I was a, uh, a fitness and exercise champion, you know, you try and let them know that, hey, you know, you're not, you're not just a, a non-talented person that, you know, if anything, you might be more accomplished than them. No, I, I definitely do not mention that. Damn it. Damn it. All right. Well, future goals, future goals. Uh, let's go to Brian Smith has another 
behind the scenes question for you. Brian says, Lee, what kind of vocal warm-ups or training do you do to be prepared to talk for hours during a broadcast? And shouldn't that question be posed to our man, Townie Bell, who I think wins the per-minute conversation challenge in the booth? But what do you do, Lee? I mean, you're, in theory, uh, other than the gallon of whiskey you consume a day, is there something else you do to, to lubricate the old voice? No, no, actually... Too many glasses of wine the night before is not good for your voice, so definitely don't do that. Um, I've learned that the hard way. Um, but don't on a, on a broadcast weekend, like on a race weekend, I don't. Um, sorry if this disappoints, but I don't actually do any. Um, you just you just get into it. The only time I've ever done any kind of warm up type stuff like that is uh, when I do Dakar Rally each year, each January. And you've got to go into the voiceover booth to do the half-hour show because we spend, you know, a good chunk of the day writing the show. Um, and you have to read. It's got to be. It's got to be. A. It's got to be word perfect. But you've got to be right on the money with the speed of your read to match the pictures, right? And uh, so um, the only time I do anything like that is I just do some weird stuff with my opening and closing and twisting and contorting my mouth. Just to kind of just to kind of get my just get everything moving because when you go when the when the tape rolls and you've got to make the words fit um, you don't want to you don't want to be doing you know second take third take fourth take because you've got a room full of people you've got your producer and you've got the audio people and you've got the editors and you know that this you know they're waiting on me for the final piece of the puzzle to be done. And you don't want to keep them there all night, and um, so I, I put a lot. Of, I put more pressure on myself just to get it right. So I do some warm ups then, but that, that's that's really the only time. Uh, tea tea's good. Um, stuff with too much dairy, like a like a creamy coffee or something like that, that's not real good for your voice. So just like a tea, like a mint tea or a, or a green tea, or that's pretty good. But yeah, I don't. I sorry, it's not very complex. Maybe some people do. I I, I don't necessarily do anything. I'm currently putting down the creamy coffee I have uh, within one foot of me to the left as Rocky is now clawing and attacking my leg. Man, this dude wants to be fed. All right, Mike Jablo, you said, hey, MP, I'll be heading down to Indy this week and want to watch practice before attending my 54th consecutive Indy 500. That's amazing. Oh, wow. wow. I know. That's all. I mean, I haven't been on the planet that long. That's amazing, Mike. He says, can you please explain the various roles of the team engineers sitting in front of their laptops in back of the team's timing stands. What data are they looking at? So that's a great question because if we're talking about what you see on TV, what the NBC cameras or just those embedded at IMS will find, you'll tend to see those sitting at the front of the timing stand. We know that there's probably a strategist. There is a primary race engineer and an assistant engineer but we don't necessarily get to see what the folks behind them are doing, or maybe even that there are folks behind them doing stuff. So speaking just in a very general term here, Mike, because every team structures themselves a little bit differently. Some have more assistant engineers than others. Some are very simplified and streamlined. The only people working there, at least team-based, are those that you can see on the timing stand. But for those that do have an abundance you usually have someone behind that is looking at dedicated live telemetry channels. It could be 
tire pressures. That's something that can often happen. And this isn't exclusive to IndyCar. You find that in sports cars and other places as well. But you'll often have a second engineer, a second assistant that is truly just looking at something that has been deemed very critical. So it might be tire pressures. Uh, It could be fuel, how much fuel is left in the car, doing fuel prediction and whatnot. Could be a performance engineer who's looking at one of hundreds of math channels, trying to look at something that either they've been tasked to do before the session or the race engineer has said, hey, uh, we just made this change to the car. Please track this or these specific things. Next to that person, the one that you will see that is usually behind, not always, but one of those folks that you will see on every single team, that is the manufacturer, the auto manufacturer representative, the technician that is in charge of the engine, whether it's a Chevy or Honda. And they will indeed be looking at all the various performance parameters of the engine, all of the temperatures, all the pressures. They're the person truly tasked with making sure that that thing is alive, staying alive, performing as intended, and uh, feeding anything necessary to the race engineer. But in many instances, they're more of an Overwatch-type role than someone that is actively telling the uh, team's engineers what to do uh, or any adjustments that need to be made on a, a really regular basis. So more often than not, Mike, you'll get a second engineer tasked with very specific watchdog things, and then you'll have someone from either Honda Performance Development or Ilmore Engineering slash Chevrolet Racing really looking after their motors to make sure that everything is super happy there. Let's go to Anthony Pienta. Interesting one here. He says, Marshall and Lee, can you help me understand why there are not more shared events between IMSA and IndyCar? I'm a long-term, long-time IndyCar fan, starting to get interested in sports cars. Thank you, Anthony. It seems that the concentric circles of fans, sponsors, TV partners, and whatnot overlap quite a bit. Wouldn't partnering create a significant value, especially from commercial, entertainment, and attendance perspectives? He says he's likely missing something as to why there are not more collaborations between IndyCar and IMSA. Definitely a, not just valid question, Anthony, but definitely an interesting one. I, From what I know, I might have even written about it, but I often, Lee, forget the things that I write. Uh, usually, Sometimes it's been a week. Uh, it's usually within two or three weeks. I've almost completely forgotten about the stuff that I've written. So I think I might have written that IMSA and IndyCar are looking to try and do more together. I know that I've written the World Challenge Series is certainly looking to try and do more with IndyCar. But I believe the the driver here, Anthony, right now at least, is you have two unique championships with still rather different fan bases that really want to be their own strong, independent entity. And since they are in theory, fighting over the same audience that might be watching a NASCAR, Formula One, you name it, just going after racing fans in general, first and foremost, you probably understand why the folks at IndyCar aren't necessarily trying to make tons of brand new IMSA fans and vice versa. What I think, and Lee, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, at least the current climate and where the climate might be heading with North American motor racing fans, the demographic for a NASCAR fan, IndyCar fan, and so on, being an older 
white male. As those older white males age, we're going to be looking at a very real need at some point in time to replenish that, that population of fans that might like motor racing to keep making it a thing for us to do. I wonder yeah. if this independent fiefdoms, this no, we're putting up the big wall and this is who we are and you stay over there and we're going to fight over the same piece of territory. I wonder if in the coming years, I don't think it's, we're talking decades, Lee. I think we're talking years. If there is going to need to be a global recognition here in the U.S. that, oh, maybe we should stop fighting over who's winning this shrinking turf war and maybe we should think more about how do we work together to keep the sport alive. Do you think that might be something that crosses or brings IndyCar and IMSA and maybe other championships closer together? Well, look, I, I can tell you for sure that, um, that we at NBC Sports um, did that uh, already uh, over this past off-season. Um, again, I mentioned Sam Flood and, and, and Rich O'Connor, who you know, and Dan Steer, um, who, who lead our ship. Um, they, they, they put their heads together and said, listen, you know, at NBC Sports Group, we've got NASCAR, We've got 20 weekends of NASCAR. We've got the entire IndyCar schedule. We've now got IMSA. We've got uh, Supercross, Motocross, American Flat Track, uh, Meekum, Meekum Auto Auctions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in this off-season, we had everybody in the building, under the one roof, in one of our studios for the first ever Motorsports Summit. And I went to the dinner the night before, and then, and then I was in the summit for a short period of time, for about half an hour. And it was phenomenal. It's never been done before. And that's not me saying that. That's the, that's the respective category saying, this is fantastic. We've, we've needed this for years. And you had everybody, Steve Phelps from NASCAR, multiple people. You had Scott Atherton. You had, um, you had uh, the, the folks from IndyCar. You had the folks from... Uh, um, you know, uh, from Supercross Feld Entertainment, uh, you had ev- everybody, everybody who was like, they're not just sending the junior burgers, the top people from all of the categories were there to speak with NBC to say, okay, we're all here under the one roof. We're all on NBC Sports. How do we help each other instead of cannibalizing? How do, how do we help each other grow? And so, yeah, mate, I think th- those, those, um, you know, kind of the, the bricks to that foundation have already been laid. So uh, to go back to the original question about the, the more weekends, uh, I think the double-header weekends work. Um, but at the same time, they, they're, they're their own entities, right? They want to be they're, they're themselves. They want, to be, they want to promote their own product. Plus, just a really, a really simple thing is, is space. <laughs> space, these, these paddocks at the tracks are only so big. So you have a full-blown... Uh, IndyCar weekend with IndyCar, Indy Lights, and the whole uh, road to Indy, you know, all of the junior categories there. And then you, if you did that with a fully blown IMSA weekend, there, there simply wouldn't be enough space in the paddock um, to, to house everybody. So, um, but I think the two doubleheader weekends that we have already at Long Beach and, and Detroit work really well. I, I really, back in the day, without sounding like an old fart, back in the day, I really enjoyed that doubleheader weekend, that ALMS and IndyCar at, at Mid-Ohio. I always thought that was a super weekend. Um, 
but look, you know, I think it's like anything, anything is on the table to help whatever category grows. So I think the, the leaders of the respective categories um, are, are looking at anything. Not a bad idea. Again, just to try and think of how folks can work together to lift everyone's proverbial boats in this tide that might be heading out a little bit on our favorite sport here. All right, Lee, I know that we need to get you going here shortly, so I'm going to whittle this down to a few more questions. Let's see, where should we wander next? Huh. Why don't we go to another Indy 500 related one? It's it, I think it fascinates a lot of people because I think folks are happy to hear that NBC is going to bring the NBC Sports treatment to the 500. Jordan Darwin says, Lee, what do you think your preparation will be like for the broadcast of the 500? And he also asks, uh, you get the first pick in the office pool for the 500. Who do you take and why? I I can't uh, justify this. or Not justify, I can't explain this. Um, but I just have this weird feeling in my gut that Graham Rahal's going to win. Um Many people might laugh at that or say you're crazy, but I don't know. I just have this, I have this weird feeling that, that, that Graham's going to get it done this year. Um, and then far as the preparation, more than anything, I probably would say more than any race uh, that I've ever done, um, just because I want it to be, you know, really, really thorough and really good, and so does everybody on the team. Um you know, of which we're really excited to have Mike Tirico hosting. Um, uh, Danica Patrick's going to be alongside. Chris Devoter's going to be there. Dale Earnhardt Jr. is coming along. Uh, it's going to be so. We got we've got we've got the team there. It's it's going to be really good. Um, so yeah, a lot of excitement. Mike's going to come. I think uh, Mike Tirico's going to pop out this weekend, maybe if he can, to the Grand Prix, and then he'll also be there on qualifying weekend just to. Not to be on air with us, just to just to soak it up and get himself ready. He's really excited. I saw him in the building a couple of weeks ago. He's you know he's been busy with everything, right? Kentucky Derby last weekend and everything that Mike has on his plate. But he's uh, he's he's pretty jacked. He's pretty excited to be to be doing it. Um, so yeah, really uh, really good feeling in the uh, in the building, and we're ready to go. I love that you picked Ram Rahal. He's going to be so happy. Uh, let's see, Joey of the Priuses. Priuses is, 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 asks. Oh, I know, I know that guy from Twitter. I yeah. recognize that. Name. Joey's very active. Gotta love Joey. He says, "Are we going to hear from David Hobbs on any IndyCar broadcast this year? Because I know at least ninety-nine point nine percent of the viewer base would be so happy to hear from him again on TV. Any plans on sneaking Hobbo up to the booth? What do we need to do?" And if anyone from NBC um, is listening, cover your ears if you don't have plans. We're we're gonna execute a little clandestine effort here. Um, I would say um, the easiest way to to hear from Hobbo uh, would be on the Road America Elkhart Lake weekend because yep. he lives in Elkhart Lake during the summer. Uh, so that would make sense, and he's usually in some capacity out there as the grand poobah of something because they just love him out there. <laughs> so that would make sense to have Hobbo uh, do a cameo at Road America. But other than that, Joey, I don't know of any. Uh, I still talk to Hobbo regularly. He's loving life down in Vero Beach. Desperately misses doing telly, um, as I miss working with him too. Um, he's still got a lot to say in his funny way. Um 
turns 80 this year, you know, he's probably, he probably might get a bit pissed at me for saying that, but uh, I just think I say it because I think it's remarkable. I mean, you know, to, to, to be, to be, you know, what is it? It's 18 months ago now that we were on the air finishing off doing F1. He was 78, 78 years of age and still doing live television is quite remarkable in my opinion. I agree. I've seen him two or three or four times already this year, maybe even five. And it's just, you know, we might not see him on TV, but at least for those of us who are fortunate to call Hobo, or as Robin Miller refers to him, Hobo, as a friend, uh, yeah, th- there's just amazing life and sustenance coming our way from the dear man. All right, two more questions to go. We'll go with Lance Snyder, who says, does Lee have any pre-race rituals or superstitions like many drivers do? Now, I don't know if we want to tell them that you're actually naked from the waist down on most broadcasts, <laughs> but is there anything else you do we don't know about? Uh, no rituals per se. I do, I do, uh, I do wear, uh, I wear black socks. I wear, I wear some Calvin Klein black socks, and I have, I, I have. I always make sure I take, you know, three pair with me and then the, the rest of the socks in my bag don't matter. But I have to have three pair of black <laughs> Calvin Klein socks for each day of broadcasting, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's my quirky little uh, ritual, I guess. Is that because you were let down by a pair of black Adidas socks or Reebok or no, whatever else? Or? No, I don't, know, I don't know how it even bloody happened. I don't know. Somewhere along the line I bought those and... In my weird brain, I've I've said to myself, "Well, they're my broadcast socks." So, have you ever left the house with, say, two pair and turned around and gone back to get a third? That'd be a little. That might be a little much on the OCD spectrum. No, no. But I tell you what, I've done, which is which is quite disgusting. Is is that if I have left with only two pair, I'll wear I'll wear one pair twice, <laughs> just so I don't break the r- ritual. So they're. they're uh, they're quite on the nose by the end of that second day. We're just going to leave this at socks and not get into other <laughs> undergarments here. We're going to leave that all alone, Mr. Diffie. All right, let's go to our final question. This comes in from Vinny B and draws from uh, really a lifetime of your love and many years of uh, meritorious service. Vinny says, going to be the perfect thing to listen on my way down to IMS on Friday, talking about one of our podcasts. But he says, question for Lee. Out of the current crop of Formula One drivers, who do you think would be most willing to try the Indy 500? So I saw this. I saw this question on Twitter the other day, and I answered it by saying, "Just my opinion uh, would be Verstappen, just because I I I take him as that kind of a guy who, yeah, why not? Let's give it a go." But um, and then a gentleman kindly forwarded an article. Uh, from the Netherlands, uh, where where he's been quoted as saying, "No, that's that's that that race." I, I guess it was a swipe at, at Alonso, uh, saying, "No, that race is for guys who who, who uh, don't have a chance of winning here in Formula One." So I guess uh, my uh, my, but that was just my personal take. That I just thought Verstappen would be a good uh, a good one to have a crack at it. Um, out of the current crop. No, it's a good one. I don't see Vettel doing it. Danny Maybe Ricardo. Ricardo stands yeah. out to me as the one yeah. where, I mean, that A, he loves America, 
Uh, yep. He's just got, uh, despite being Australian, which we know is a limitation. Um, I just love the kid. He's got the best personality. He is his own man, says what he thinks, does what he believes is right, loves motorsports, big passion for racing as well. Not as if yep. he's going to want to be leaving F1 anytime soon. I mean, maybe if his current uh, current employer, Renault, decides to become an IndyCar engine supplier, who knows? Maybe that's the gateway. So I'm not sure how Ricardo would get here. But, man, if there was a way where he could do that, and obviously it wasn't conflicting with Monaco, et cetera, et cetera, he seems like someone who would be absolutely ga- not only game, but just wanting to go out and pound beers at night with fellow drivers, although he'd probably learn quickly that most of them, maybe other than Connor Daly, aren't doing that. But he just seems like someone who would want to soak in the entire experience and then come back year after year. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. That's that's a, that's a fair one. Maybe Kimmy, you know, because Kimmy has had oval experience when he did trucks and, and Xfinity. Um, might do that as a capper to his career, but I don't know. I don't. I don't get a. I don't get a strong sense of that, but yeah, I agree with you on Ricardo. Um, boy, I hope things turn around for his Renault with his Renault because you know he's a he's a racer, all right? He's a racer's racer, and uh, a big payday is nice. Looking at those zeros in your bank account, but at the end of the day, he wants to win Grand Prix and uh, and win a world title, and it, it sure ain't looking like that at the moment. Well, thank you, Mister Diffie, for taking some time here trying to get in a visit here to the good old week in IndyCar podcast while you are in the midst of also getting ready for the Indy GP this weekend. We'll look forward to can seeing I tell you. Can I tell you, can I tell you where I am right now, where I'm talking to you from? Hopefully it's not a rest stop in the men's room. No, I, I am in my car. Uh, hopefully I haven't been able to hear any, any uh, outside noises, but I'm in my car. I'm about to pull up at JFK uh, here in New York where I'm picking up my 76-year-old mother who has just flown all the way from Brisbane, Australia, where you've been before, and uh, she is coming over here to go to her first Indianapolis 500. Oh, that is the best. Uh, well, I can't wait to meet uh, meet your mom and just knowing how much uh, love and hospitality you showed me when I was down under a couple times for uh, various V8 races. Yeah, look forward to a. Uh, telling your mom her boy was was raised right and we certainly appreciate all that you do for us mr diffie thank you my brother and uh, we'll look forward to looking and looking on your social medias the uh the book faces and the tweeters and the the grams to insters and whatnot on your pretty awesome efforts and intent to raise some money to help robert wickens offset some of the ongoing costs to uh, adjust to the what we hope is temporary limitations he is experiencing but pretty awesome of you to put that together and hopefully folks will buy some and help our boy wiki so thanks again brother you know how much we appreciate you no worries mate thanks very much thanks for having me on and uh thank you to all of your regular um podcast listeners for for the uh for the questions cool questions they're they're, uh, fun to answer so thanks very much Chris Wyndham, I'm so happy to have you here on the Week in IndyCar podcast. Even happier, though, that we're going to get you back, and hopefully we're going to do a little dance, make sure all the bad juju goes away. We're going to get one of America's badasses of all badasses into the Freedom 100 to go for an Indy Lights win. How you doing? And give us some thoughts 
on what you're feeling coming into this month of May, trying to uh, make this Ballardian Bird Indie Lights experience pan out the way you want to. Oh, you know, I'm I'm feeling good about it. We uh, we got the test last last month at Kentucky, and uh, I got to learn a lot more a lot more about the air with the cars than I did than I did as much last year. Um, you know, last year I kind of just showed up to Indy and had to learn it all in the one day. And then obviously it didn't go, didn't go quite as we planned. So, you know, I feel a lot better about it this year and, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity again. So you mentioned getting a chance to do a little bit of testing. I mean, with what I've watched you do and hopefully many other folks have watched you do, it's big horsepower, short wheelbase, and all kinds of angle steering wheel crossed you getting up on high banks low banks you name it what's it been like adjusting or adapting or finding a comfort zone in something that does not allow you to do any of the things by and large that have made you so successful in short track racing right i mean Honestly, it's a complete it's a complete opposite getting into a lights car from what I'm used to. Uh, that's that's the main thing I struggle with right off the bat is just I'm so used to being able to like you said I'm on high banks, low banks, attacking corners as hard as I can. So I'm so used to driving a car with the throttle and being able to you know on and off as much as I want, and that's a, not what you want to do at all in a lights car. So uh, that's the biggest adjustment really for me is just. Um, learning how to stay as smooth as possible as I can on throttle through through the corner, and the engineers have helped me tremendously with that, especially with our all-day test at Kentucky this uh, this last last month that we got. So I'm definitely definitely feeling better about it, and I think, uh, I think we're going to have a good shot at it this year. So looking at this Bellardi team, definitely one that has been successful in lights, championship-winning team in lights, also have some teammates who frankly have never done anything that you have done and have no experience in your world but might in theory be able to lend a little bit of advisement as you're getting adjusted to this open wheel wings down force turn the wheel as little as possible be super smooth with your uh, throttle input type of driving have you had a chance to talk with them at all or at least uh get your i guess the planned team strategy moving before we get into the indie lights portion of the month uh, i haven't really got a chance to talk with them much i tested with uh, lucas cole at kentucky and we we went over a few things together but i'm definitely trying to uh, absorb everything i can and get as much help from anybody i'll take uh, you know it's like i said it's it's tough to jump in a any kind of race car i mean and do it once a year and try to do the best you can but that's uh that's the opportunity i'm faced with and i'm trying to make the best of it so i think uh i think that i think that i've learned a lot just from the few times i've been in the car and like i said once we get to indy i think i'll i'll be taking as much advice and paying attention to as much as i can before we get to the questions that folks have sent in for you chris let's talk a little bit about the bird family David Bird in particular is someone who has just constantly been sharing his love for what you do, belief that you can be an absolute monster in Indy Lights at the Speedway as you have been in your USAC career and so on. Share some thoughts about the passion from this family 
wanting to make sure that IndyCar's longstanding history of short track, dirt track drivers coming to Indianapolis and demonstrating their supreme skill, that that link is not broken uh, and folks like you can actually help maintain that history. Well, like you said, I think I think the passion David has in the whole family is just second to none. You know, he we uh, we met we'd never actually met before before last year um, running the freedom, and he, he got a hold of me on actually Twitter messaged me after I won the 2017 USAC Sprint Car Championship and asked me if I'd be interested in running the speedway. I said, well, hell yeah. So uh, you know, it was a short 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 time frame there we had to get it all put together and you know ever since then he's been a big part been, been a big part even in my open wheel career with the sprint car silver crowns and midgets so obviously i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him uh getting a chance to go to the speedway and as everybody probably knows he's helped plenty of other drivers in the last being Brian Clawson get there so you know he he's all in for it he, he wants it to work out just as much as i do i think so we're gonna we're gonna do our best to make that happen and uh, keep moving forward with it. Last question for you from me, Chris. You share some thoughts or maybe any stories or insights, whether it's your fellow competitors on the short tracks that you visit or fans that you see on a weekly basis who know about this upcoming Indy Lights opportunity, even last year's, and just whether it's encouragement or happiness to see that one of their own is heading to the big track, the most famous oval in the world, to try and show folks that, hey, we belong. What's that feeling been like? What kind of feedback have you gotten from those, let's just say, your day job? I think the feedback's been great. Fans and competitors, I mean, I have a lot of guys I race with talk to me about it, and I know, uh, you know, I think that people want it to work out so it opens up more opportunities for for other drivers like myself to to compete there and but definitely the fans i mean i've had so many people come up to me after after our crash last year in practice and say they really hope that i can get back here for next year and this is all dirt track fans i'm talking about too so you know there's a there's a huge following that is going to come that will be present with the speedway just from the dirt track world and that's that's a pretty cool deal about our about our scene. You know, the the dirt track fans are some of the best you can find, and they're very loyal to their drivers, and they uh, they want people to be successful, and they you know they're, there's going to be a lot of people paying attention to it from the from the dirt track scene for sure. And also on the Indy 500 front, we have a first time entrant in the Clawson Marshall Racing Team, also bringing this uh, short track culture back to the 500 as an entrant so i think it's going to be a pretty amazing pretty amazing year with you and indy lights uh, and the Claus and marshall team trying to get into the indy 500 and make the field of 33 so pretty awesome stuff let's go to our first question here from jerry sudduth it says chris do you ever see usac sprints going back to, going back to pave tracks heavily and he says would that increase the odds of other sprint car drivers maybe attempting more of these IndyCar and road to Indy crossover opportunities? You know, I think, uh, obviously, as most people know, budget budget is the, is the toughest thing in our sport. And I think that's kind of why the pavements, the, the pavement cars went away as far as the sprint car portion of it. It's just, 
it's a little much for a lot of these full-time teams right now that are just dirt teams to also field a full-time pavement sprint car. So I would love for it to come back. I love running on pavement and dirt together. I thought that was great. Definitely showcased, you know, you had to be good on both to win the championship. And I don't know if I foresee it returning anytime soon, but uh, I would definitely, definitely encourage it all I could. Let's go to, let's see. Let's go to Daniel Davidson, who says, Chris, is there anything you can take from racing, uh, whatever vehicles on pavement to racing the Indy Lights car on pavement? And do you think there's anything a driver from, say, Indy Lights or IndyCar might be able to take with them what they do there to adapting to racing successfully on dirt? Well, I think just your, you know, you raced your whole life. I've raced since I was seven years old. So just your driving instinct and your awareness of being inside of a race car, no matter what it is, definitely adapts to any car you get in. But as far as the actual mechanics and the way you have to drive the car with the steering and pedals, it's, uh, it's really not comparable at all to what we do. Um, you know, the pavement, the pavement side of things with the silver crown cars that we do, Yes, I'd say it helps a little bit because you, you do have to be smooth in those cars. But, um, you know, it's just I don't think a driver in the white series could really take anything other than their natural, you know, racer instincts and jump in a dirt car and be able to help them at all. You know, I, I talked to Connor Daly after he ran his first midget midget show and he, uh, you know, he obviously said this is this is nothing like I've ever done before. I, <laughs> I think he said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but you know, it's, uh, it's cool to see guys trying to do that though. Two more questions for you, Chris. This one comes in from our pal, Jordan Darwin, just asking mindset. He says, what are your, what's your thought process? Where's your head at coming back to Indy this year after last year's heartbreak and that crash that prevented you from taking part in the freedom 100? Is it, any additional safety is, or, you know, safety minded, maybe not going a hundred percent at all times, or is it okay now that I have some more testing behind me, uh, hopefully we won't have a repeat of last year. Well, I think you definitely have to go in. I mean, I'm, I'm going in full of confidence again. I, uh, obviously was very, very disheartened after our crash last year, but like I said, I got to do some testing with other cars on the track, which I didn't get to do last year before we got to Indy. And it was, I was honestly the biggest surprise to me is how, how crazy the air was behind other cars, you know, and I was, I was trying to learn that all just in a couple hours. And, you know, I think, uh, I think I've got a better head going in this year, knowing that I've, I got to do it and know, definitely know more of what I need to do when I'm around other guys. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I feel really good about it, and I think uh, I think I definitely learned a lot at the test. I know I know I'm gonna have to learn a lot more once we get back to Indy, but at least uh, at least I got to do it this year. And, and like I said, the hardest part about it is really you got to just stay focused on trying to remember what you just did at that test because I don't get to get back in a lights car every week or every other week, and even if it is a road course, it's still it's still a lights car, and you know those guys those guys are doing it once or twice a month so that's that's the toughest part is just uh trying to remember and keep all the thoughts in your head of what you just learned in the test last month and bring it with you to the speedway 
I've saved my favorite question for last. This comes in from Brett Ross. He says, Chris, what was it like driving a NASCAR truck around Eldora? And he asks how much different that was than your, your usual USAC car and how much he loves to see a great USAC driver coming back to Indy. But, I mean, it's what Chris, it's one of my favorite visuals in a decade or more of seeing, you know, big old NASCAR trucks on dirt. I mean, that's, I don't know, man. I almost think there needs to be a separate Eldora NASCAR truck series because it's just everything that's awesome about racing. But what was that like, my man? That had to be a little bit of a mind warp for you. Yeah, going into that, you know, I'm used to running wide open around Eldora on a sprint car, and you can't even come close to that in a truck because they do not handle well there at all. So you're, uh, it's really tough to do. I mean, even though the speeds aren't very high in a truck there, it's probably just as tough, if not tougher, to run one of those around there than it is a sprint car because they're they're just so hard to handle and keep straight and try to still run fast laps. So they're just heavy they want to spin out every time you touch the throttle but i think that's what makes it so cool for people to watch watch and drive um you know guys racing and being on the edge of being on the edge of spinning out or crashing every lap but still running side by side for however however many laps so it's uh that's definitely something i'm glad i got to do and hopefully get to get to get the chance to do it again well chris count me among those who are really looking forward to Round two with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I'm hoping you win this round. They, you know, they, they might have got you the first one, but I'm glad you're coming back. I'm glad the Bird family, glad that Brian Bellardi and his team, everyone's teaming up to make sure you come back, get to represent for all the short track racing fans in America. And this is just going to be a, another and equally awesome part of the month of May. Well, I really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to being there. And thanks for having me on. All right, let's get to the questions you have sent in for me. We're going to kick off with Richard Hinshaw, who asks, if IndyCar was to add some kind of hybridization to their new engine formula, that one being due in 2021, therefore becoming more attractive to potential manufacturers such as Porsche, would they run the risk of losing Chevy or Honda? Would the existing manufacturers who have done so much to stick with IndyCar prefer to stay with something more like the current engine formula and is that part of the reason to stay away from hybridization that is the most accurate perfect and succinct question that also doubles richard as a portrait of the exact scenario that is a hard one to crack so i know i'll go back just recap things quickly when the new 2.2 liter twin turbo formula debuted in 2012 wasn't super powerful even on high boost the motors just weren't as raging as hoped one of the early conversations after that fact was hmm well we're not going to go back to the drawing board and redesign and, and build 30 or 40 brand new engines that's crazy cost wise what about hybrid what about adding a hybrid at some point here early? An off-the-shelf spec hybrid, something that isn't, again, super out of this world technology, out of space, amazing costs like you've never seen, drain the budgets to death. Nothing like that. But is there a 50, 75, 100 horsepower off-the-shelf hybrid system we could try and install, try and make fit, 
after the fact that this car's new DW12 has been designed, this motor and everything has been designed to fit without one, is there a way we could fit one in? That primarily came from Honda. Honda Performance Development definitely expressed their interest in something like that. They were mentioning how the upcoming, I believe was still upcoming then, new Acura NSX was going to be hybridized. So they were wanting to see, hey, this makes sense. We're going to be selling performance cars now that have a hybrid. So this would not be out of the norm. This would not be ill-fitting uh, in our marketing message, etc. As I recall, I don't think Chevy was super interested. Not that they disliked or had a disinterest in hybrids. Certainly they have had a lot of awesome cars that are hybridized and continue to. I think it was just more of the cost standpoint. Oh, boy, we've already spent a lot. I don't know if we want to have to get into this right away. But at least back then, Honda somewhat privately, a little bit on the record, but more words behind the scenes, definitely open to going to this hybrid addition to what the formula was. It wasn't quite as fast or exciting as they had hoped. And that changed over the years, as I understand. We are looking at an IMSA, though, Richard, and this is maybe where this stuff could align somehow. Honda slash Acura being involved in IMSA in the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, winning last weekend at Mid-Ohio with their Team Penske run ARX 05 DPIs. IMSA will be going to a spec-ish. It might be purely off-the-shelf, don't-touch-it hybrid. Not 100% sure. They're still deciding, but... No question that in 2022, the brand new IMSA DPI formula, they call it DPI 2.0, will have a hybrid. So that'll be a brand new thing for them. It's meant to be kind of sort of off the shelf. Uh, It's at least what they're talking about now. It's 50-ish horsepower. Questions as to whether that's powerful enough. If it should be, I don't know what the number is, but more. Definitely a bigger punch. That's going to happen. We expect Acura slash Honda to be in IMSA for that 2.0 in a couple of years from now. Therefore, that would not be totally foreign to them as something in a top-line motor racing program for them here in North America, which makes me think if IndyCar is able to look at a similar thing, an identical thing, I'm not sure. Could it be the same system used across IMSA and IndyCar? Don't know. But I at least expect that to be accepted there. Chevrolet racing, although they call it Cadillac racing, but it's GM racing, primarily the Chevy side and engineers. They're obviously an IMSA DPI as well. Their Cadillacs have won the last two championships since the formula debuted. They've essentially owned the category. They too, as we expect them to be around, would be opting into this hybrid thing over there. So if we're just looking at cross opportunities, I think we could be at a place where, although there has been pushback on the IndyCar front, Both of the major engine brands in IndyCar, the only two that we have right now, the same exact people sitting at the table talking with IndyCar are the same exact people, more or less, talking with IMSA and planning to go hybrid there. So I don't think it would be that much of a stretch to suggest that if IndyCar were to implement this, it wouldn't be a foreign topic. If anything, these manufacturers in the IMSA conversations might be able to help provide feedback or, hey, go talk to this manufacturer. Let's look at this system and maybe could actually help fast track this even more. So where things do get a little bit of a 
get a little bit interesting, though, is definitely the cost side. Uh, it is easier, as I understand, to request funds for these manufacturers, a variety of manufacturers, to get R&D money and marketing money for their sports car programs, knowing that at least it's more in the realm of something that looks like a car than maybe it is for IndyCar, uh, which is definitely a little bit of a, again, kind of out-of-this-universe type form of competition compared to sports cars. So there's just a lot of stuff working around in here that I hope and am semi-confident, Richard, that Chevy and Honda will be on board in some way with IndyCar wanting to add a hybrid system, provided IndyCar makes that decision, right? They, it's not part of this current formula they have announced, but uh, I have a sneaking suspicion it could be. Where this is most important, though, and this fits back into one of the primary things we've been hearing from Chevy and Honda for years now, and this is maybe where we can close this topic, is they have been saying, whatever we need to do to get a third manufacturer in, or fourth, fifth, who knows, tell us what we need to do, how we can help, because not only will it, it help IndyCar, which we want to do, they're both amazing citizens of open-wheel racing, there's also some self-interest in place, and that's not a bad thing. It helps reduce overall supply numbers. We know how stretched the two happen to become during the month of May and even during the regular season. It's a lot of people. From just simply taking meetings and talking to converting those conversations into action and wanting to join is the lack of a hybrid system that they want and need from a marketing standpoint, from a buy-in standpoint internally. That's the thing that I believe, if we're talking about willingness to help, that's where I believe Chevy and Honda maybe need to look at and realize, okay, even if it's something we haven't been keen on, if this is the mechanism that takes a split in supply to cutting it into a third, maybe quarters, if that's the thing and the costs won't be outrageous to do it, maybe that's the best way to go. Chris Hoffman, fun little question here I can answer quickly. Yes, Marshall, what's the coolest piece of memorabilia you've bought and been given? Uh, in terms of given, uh, definitely a couple of things that I've gotten from Dan Gurney that he sent me just, uh, I guess it's not memorabilia. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it is memorabilia. It, it, everybody defines it differently. It's not a part of a car or some other thing, but uh, do have just some really nice cards that Dan sent me over the years. Uh, they did a limited run of, I think, 50 bottle openers that are shaped uh, to look, actually manufactured to look exactly like the nose of Dan's 1967 Spa Formula One winning Eagle. And, yeah, I mean, that showed up in the mail, and I'm like, are you kidding? It just, you know, I, I think I've taken it out of the little pouch twice to look at it. Otherwise, it just sits away. It genuinely sits away in a little safe. I'm not necessarily because it has whatever monetary value. It's just, yeah, one of those things where you go, I, I, I don't even know why you guys thought to give it to me, but it's just an honor among honors. As for things that I've bought, I have to admit I'm not a big purchaser of grand items. I do love some of the smaller things, and maybe it's because, I don't know, I'm a dork, but I'm a huge fan of press kits, old school press kits, which more or less no longer exist. No one makes them anymore. AJ Foyt racing is the only one that actually produces an old school press kit with images, stories, you name it to help the media do their jobs. 
I definitely, when I go to memorabilia shows, which happens once, maybe twice a year for me, I'm looking for press kits, old 60s, 70s, 80s, even a little bit of the 90s, just to fill in either some gaps, information gaps, or, hey, I don't have a photo of that thing from that year. Uh, I just, those things I love. Uh, it's really cool to find some of the oddities. I uh, came across one, which I think was like a 67 or 68 uh, Penske Sunoco AMC Javelin uh, Trans Am press kit, which is just mind-blowing. And again, I, I'm sure I'm off a year or two there. Uh, found one when Chevy announced their new, I think it was 86, their new 2.65 liter turbo V8 IndyCar engine built by Ilmore. And just glorious black and white photos of that motor you know, presented for the photographer things that you just really don't find online in this pre-online era. So that's one thing I'm looking for. Sometimes there's just pure fun. Uh, old 70s-looking posed photos with drivers kind of done up like bad, uh, you know, porn stars and whatnot. Also love stickers. And this is the other thing that's just a silly thing that happens to be my thing. I love old racing stickers, and so I'm always on the hunt for them. And I, I have, I don't know, one or 200 at least. So don't find as many of those as I would hope at memorabilia shows. But those are the things I'm usually looking for. I have just about every book I can think of. Uh, I do have some models, but I try not. I mean, that's one of those things. That's that's pure crack addiction. You start getting into models, and you'll just be spending all your money every day because there's so many cool things that come out. But yeah, from a purchasing standpoint, old media kits, IndyCar, sports car, who knows, something really unique, and stickers as well. Those are the things I will be boxing people out and giving them the people's elbow if necessary at that good old memorabilia show on Saturday the 25th where our pals at Toronto Motorsports are doing their pop-up shop. Let's go to John Sable. He says, has a driver ever turned down a Penske seat? Is it even worth playing the, quote, will he or won't he game with Rossi? We did it with Simon and Joseph, and at this point it just seems mute, right? One thing Penske is really great at doing is not talking about what they are doing. So when we hear that driver such and such might have met with Roger or Tim Sindrick or whomever, at least for me, it's never from anybody at Team Penske. Uh, we do know, and Ryan Honoré did confirm, I believe, last week's show or the week before, uh, that, yeah, there were conversations with Penske, but it never went anywhere. Not sure if there's any others that really jump out to me right now. Robin Miller, I'm sure, uh, can probably think of some from back in the day where they might not have worked out. But, yeah, um, I mean, here's the thing with Rossi. The guy is so good at what he does and has really – an amazing team built around him, you'd have to look at problems, I would think. You would have to look at deficiencies in his current situation, John, that might lead him to look elsewhere or want to leave. The only things, if I'm playing driver-manager, would be, hey, Napa is your sponsor, is the team sponsor, has been with you for a couple of years now. What kind of future commitment will they have? Are they someone that we can get to commit to a three, four, five-year deal? What kind of security can we lay out in front of you to show you that if you stay here, 
you are going to continue to have all of this awesome stuff that allows you to win races and vie for championships. Jeremy Millis, his race engineer. I don't know. I have no idea what his employment contract is like, but that is someone, if they were to lose him, that would certainly destabilize Rossi's program. Is he someone they can lock down on a same length, three, five year, however many years. If I'm Michael Andretti, I'm not so much thinking it's just strictly a dollar figure that might keep Rossi. I'm just having to look at the situation and say, hey, you have greatness across everything that is a part of your entry from the mechanics to the refueler, engineer, just top to bottom. If we can keep all of that in place and we can show you that we have sponsorship and money and everything laid out for you to continue uninterrupted for the next three, four, five years. That's the thing to me in theory, that would be very hard to turn down. Quick flip side to that is although Roger Penske has sponsors for his program, we know that we certainly believe he continues to fund it out of his own pocket to some degree. We know that as long as Team Penske exists, drivers are going to have a pretty amazing place with unparalleled stability. So knowing that stability is there, knowing that finances are never really a question, knowing that you have the finest of everything, that might be the the thing that causes a lot of, not necessarily sleepless nights, but heavy thinking nights of, hmm, I know if I go in this direction, it's pretty much guaranteed. It's always going to be awesome. I will never want for anything. I just truly have to drive. Little question on engineer. Again, who would he work with if he were, if he were to go to Penske? Jeremy Millis worked at Penske in the past. They split on not happy terms, and there's no way anyone can fathom, even Jeremy himself, that he would be invited back. So if Alexander were to jump ship, there would be a new engineering relationship to explore with someone. So that could definitely be a negative. But again, we have one where you know you're going to have everything at all times, ultimate winner, ultimate stability at Team Penske. And ready? That's the only question for me. If you can show that the money is going to be there and the budget's going to be there to make sure that everything's going to keep motoring down the road the way it's been, I really can't come up with a reason why he would leave or should. Just a quick personal, hashtag me personally, thought. It's common for Roger to vacuum up the best drivers, the ones who are emerging. Joseph Newgarden was winning a bunch and coming to Penske became a champion right away. Pagano winning a bunch, front-running guy with a small team, transitions to Penske. First year wasn't great. Second year championship, amazing. Power, obviously, that guy's just been a, a monster all along. I kind of like the idea, John, of IndyCar's best not always going to Roger. I like some of IndyCar's best staying at Chip Ganassi Racing like a Scott Dixon. I like the idea of Rossi being where he is. Run down the list of some of the other true contenders that aren't at Penske. You know, could Simon be moving on? Who knows how many more years power will be driving. There will be change there. There will be some acquisition of new drivers. 
just not necessarily a big fan of it being almost an automatic or feeling like an automatic that the big, big drivers who aren't at Penske end up there eventually. It's pretty cool to have those, some of the best, pushing back constantly and making them fight for everything that they earn. Let's go to Ian Keyworth. says, Marshall, is there any talk of IndyCar releasing an official PlayStation 4 console game the same way that Codemasters have their much-anticipated F1 2019 coming out shortly? No. Ian, I checked in. It's still an ongoing topic now many years. Uh, I've been asking about this since, I don't know, for a long time, year after year. Where are you at? What's happening? Oh, we're taking meetings. We're conversating. <laughs> uh, we're talking. We're hoping, etc. Still at that phase, still at that stage. It's still an area where IndyCar's proverbial belly is exposed. IndyCar fans aren't getting any younger. I'm not saying that a dedicated IndyCar console game would just radically alter their fortunes overnight, but I can say that knowing how big e-leagues have become how most sporting leagues stick and ball whatever have something that fans can play or just gaming fans can discover and hopefully then become fans of the sport or series that they're playing at home (sighs) yeah crazy to think we are not too far away from the year 2020 and that at least off the top of my head i think the first time i played the IndyCar PC game was something like 1989, 1990. It's just crazy for me to think that <laughs> something like 30 years after I played the first and uh, many others played the first IndyCar slash Indy 500 video game in the comfort of your home, office, or wherever crazy to think that here we are 30 years later and now for many many years there's been nothing knowing that at least back then late 80s early 90s it was kind of a brand new world of computers the internet didn't really exist it was just a cool thing to do in super pixelated horrible graphics horrible everything and now again i i wish i knew how and why indycar has missed the boat so heavily on this is so many years behind. And again, I know conversations are happening, etc., etc. But in terms of real movement, hey, we think by 2021, there's going to be something. I would love to tell you just that, that there's hope that by year X, there will be an IndyCar console game. Still waiting and hoping, my friend. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Jeremy Wargo, who says, last week you spoke about perhaps needing the engine regulations to include some sort of hybrid option to entice new manufacturers. How would a hybrid system work on an oval? How would they generate electricity at a place like Indy where there's no braking to speak of? Mentioned this a couple times, but again, happy to get into it or just reiterate it. There are turbo shaft driven hybrid systems. That was one of the things that HPD was mentioning to me on this very topic because I asked the same thing. Hey, I love the idea of some sort of hybrid addition how would that be effective at a place like Indianapolis? And so even back in 2012 was listening to, uh, well, it does siphon a bit of momentum and potentially rob a little bit of boost from the motors, but uh, something that is driven off of the turbo propeller itself, the shaft, that is something that effectively just winds 
the KERS system, the Kinetic Energy Recovery System, to charge that battery. I mean, the other thing, too, is would this be used for push-to-pass? Would this be something where, again, in theory, if it was uh, enough of a charge, uh, enough of a size of the battery pack itself, could this be all electric use on and off of pit lane? Uh, You hit the pit lane speed limiter on entry, which kills the motor, and then you then switch to uh, electric propulsion into the pits and out. That is something that at least exiting the pits, I could be wrong on the entry, but at least exiting the pits at Le Mans, for example, and other places, the hybrid Audis, Porsches, Toyotas, and whatnot, they're completely non-internal combustion engine in terms of departing, so they save a little bit of fuel there. Uh, So again, there's a couple of ways to think about this, how you can not only charge, but also how and where it might be used. Could be a boost, uh, push to pass, could also be something that, again, uh, maybe is used on pit lane as well, demonstrating that true hybrid power being employed, uh, getting in and getting out of the box. Ed Joris asks, what is the paddock chat on whether Chevy or Honda has an advantage for the 500? None at this stage, Ed. And this just comes back to the open test that was compromised by weather and limited running. So we just did not get enough uh, dedicated running did not have enough no-toe speeds, did not have warm enough weather, didn't have enough in general to really get a feel for, ooh, it's Chevy, it's Honda. Know that Chevy won last year, obviously. Uh, Know that Honda has been strong there as well. The thing that's going to be interesting for me to monitor, find out whether I'm right or wrong here very shortly, but curious to see if we are just really really close this year something where an advantage is not so much something that is happening on the engine manufacturer side and maybe just more on the team side so not sure on this one yet we haven't had enough running to get any kind of conclusion but i am curious to see whether any disparity there might have been last year uh, might be almost imperceptible we're going to jump over to the r indycar reddit group here First question comes in from Hitoroki2, says, I'm going to Mid-Ohio for the first time for the IndyCar race in July. Can you share any secrets to Mid-Ohio, such as where to take pictures, places I should visit, enter nearby the road course, and are there any strange and new foods I should try to be aware of? Uh, Photographically, there's a lot of great options, and I know that's a really generic answer. I can't think of many places where you are unable to walk around and get some vantage points that do not have the fences right in front of you and blocking your view into the keyhole. There are some pretty cool places that you can shoot through. Obviously going to want a zoom lens of some sort or some longer glass. If we look in the infield, I mean, there's there's just so much there. So I apologize for this being, again, a rather generic answer. To the question, this is just something where maybe there are some tracks where you go, hey, it's 11 turns. There's really only three to think about. The rest, you can't see anything and or there's nothing unique. Mid-Ohio is a place where I would strongly recommend bringing comfy shoes and a backpack or whatever your camera and whatnot and just start to go for a walk. Uh, It's something where there, again, are very few places where you cannot get to and cannot find some really cool either angles or access 
the uh, if you look again in the infield on the infield itself being inside compared to going to the outside of the track and shooting the infield if you're on the actual infield of the track itself yeah there's just a lot of great places you might be surprised at how much you can shoot which is definitely in stark contrast to a lot of other tracks as for places to visit uh, i guess one of the more famous locations very nearby is where the movie the shawshank redemption was filmed so that prison uh, is there would say from a food standpoint i haven't really tried a ton at the track I will say, I don't know whether it's the oil that they use or if there's something special, but just the uh, the chicken fingers, chicken tenders, and fries at the main concession stand by the paddock. I'm constantly amazed at how good that very simple thing that you can get almost anywhere is really, really phenomenal. So somewhere in there. It's a place that honestly... Walk around and check it out and find the things that you like because there's a lot of it. And definitely coming back for your second year, third year, you're going to find more. That's at least what I have encountered there. Go to Rymanoceros. I love names on Reddit. I'm on your side regarding the 2021 engine. My question is how hard it would be to, to develop a modular engine that utilized an electric motor to torque fill on road and street courses that could easily be taken out for the ovals where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This would also be a huge boon for safety since you need to rate the car for impacts, including the extra weight of the electric system. But once you take that out for the high speed ovals, you'd have a theoretically stronger chassis. Um, chassis that wouldn't get any stronger by removing the hybrid system on the ovals it would get lighter. There'd be less mass, but uh, the chassis itself, its strength is whatever it is. The modular side is interesting as a torque fill compared to just a big either explosion of power coming out of a corner that just goes whether you need torque or not. Um, I think this, again, interesting things to consider. What I don't know is how much IndyCar would want to consider such things. Is this a hybrid system if they decide to do a hybrid system that is not just a push to pass replacement could it be something that could be employed where desired meaning instead of it just being a modular as you mentioned a torque fill thing that kind of works on its own on its own uh, coming out of corners and such right in particular power bands where there isn't a ton of torque could it be something that is saved for top end if you're wanting to, if you're close but need that extra little punch, is that something that could be stored and deployed then? Uh, is this something that you could decide to not use? Uh, if you just felt that, hey, I'm leading, I'm doing well, I don't need to use what I just stored, uh, I'm just going to hold on for that, hold on to that. Is this something that could be used heavily on demand to help a driver who is maybe a little bit questionable on fuel? And so you're not so much using your hybrid power as a big, I'm going to run away from the field, but look at places where you are burning fuel the hardest on initial acceleration, etc. Could it be something that is used there just to lighten the acceleration load required from the internal combustion engine? I mean, again, there's a lot of ways you could think of trying to use a hybrid system that aren't strictly about one big boom 
that rockets you out of a corner. Are these all things IndyCar would want to really dive into and open these things up as possibilities, allow manufacturers to do their own custom code and electronics on how they get used? I mean, that's something I would think manufacturers would want if you're going to say we're going to have a spec 100-horsepower hybrid system and teams, manufacturers, maybe your partners, if they're you know tech-based sponsors, you come up with a controller for it, how it's deployed. That's an area that manufacturers can present some sort of individual identity with an actual hybrid system itself that's off the shelf. All conversations I would think would hope would take place if they decide to go that way. Let's go to I Need a Name, Please who asks, did IndyCar not take their new engine idea to market first, therefore not understanding the significance of hybrid tech in the auto industry? And why did Chevy and Honda sign on through 2026 without really seeing the need to change anything but displacement? Says it's difficult to be optimistic about the new regulations given their general irrelevance to the auto industry, especially considering the number of manufacturers supposedly at Mid-Ohio this past weekend who are seemingly interested in running DPI 2.0 with an off-the-shelf hybrid system. It's another thing where I would say it's akin to the console topic, the e-gaming solution. Blind spot, I would say, definitely here on the engine side, and I believe that blind spot is being recognized and possibly we'll see if it gets acted upon. So this isn't trying to be negative or say mean things about IndyCar. Not at all. Just think culturally, from a senior management standpoint, there's not a huge connection or background in cutting-edge, leading-edge, high-tech, auto-manufacturer world. Something where you go, hey, we are buried into Silicon Valley, talking with all of these small electric vehicle manufacturers, big ones. Uh, what's coming next? What's happening here that will be shaping the auto industry, not just today, but for the foreseeable future, into the next decade for many years? Although hybrids are by no means brand new. I mean, we've seen the she- the Chevy Prius, good Lord, Pruitt, the Toyota Prius since what, the 90s? Uh, you know, we, there were electric vehicles before that as well. We've seen it's just become standard fare. And I think that's maybe the big takeaway here. Although hybrids are not new, they have become something that are increasingly important to the auto industry. And although Chevy and Honda have not been pushing for IndyCar to go in that direction, I think if anything, there's been buy-in because, Hey, all right. Although it's not really ticking the big box that everyone wants and needs these days from a manufacturer aspect, the series seems really happy to stay with a strictly internal combustion engine power solution and that could potentially be something that's not super expensive to achieve. So I get all these things, not discounting that need at all for cost efficiency. I just believe that it's not a surprise that IndyCar has championed this fast and loud formula coming in 2021, an increase in 200 cc's, a slightly bigger motor that can hopefully make 800, 900, then potentially 1,000 horsepower towards the end of its five-year formula. 
It's not a surprise to me that they have painted this new formula in that is strictly kind of sort of retro tech almost. If we're just looking ahead, I expect the vast majority of the auto industry, hell, even the truck industry, we've been reading about in big investments made in Detroit, in Michigan, by the big three, well, at least two of the big three, investing in big fully electric truck manufacturing you know uh, your ford f-150 battery powered i know that's a big affront to many people i get that i'm not talking about popularity here i'm just saying even on the topic of the pickup truck you're gonna haul your dirt in haul your sod haul your whatever in leaning towards hybrid if not full electric so i just don't know if indycar has taken a full measure of where the auto industry is headed even if hybrid is something that's been around for a long time uh fully electric's been around for a good while now even if who knows maybe that cycle is five ten years away from ending and maybe something else is coming i don't know i just know that creating a formula that ignores the current state of the art and the ongoing movement of that state of the art more and more towards hybrid. I'm with you here in this one. I'm not exactly sure how we ended up with a formula that says by 2025, 2026 IndyCar will still be just straight old, fill it up and fuel it and go without having any kind of hybrid system. So not to belabor the point, not a huge fan. Like I'm not a guy that loves hybrids. I don't own one. Don't really want one. Might have to buy one at some point in time. Who knows? But if this is a thing that unlocks more manufacturers, more money, helps the series to grow, bigger marketing, better exposure. If this is the one thing to help open up the doors to prosperity, instead of keeping it kind of simple and low tech and just appeasing the two manufacturers that are there right now, Again, uh, I think they're coming to realize that, yes, this was not ambitious enough or did not truly embrace where things are headed as much as we needed to. Winding down to the last couple of questions, this one comes in from Carmen Quesero. Asks something that's come in before. I don't know if I've ever answered it as much as maybe I should. Bit of a long question, but... Says it seems that the comprehensive report on Robert Wicken's accident at Pocono has become somewhat of a backburner item as time has passed and media attention has waned. I think part of the reason is because the two critical items, the safer barrier wall and the fencing, require a huge investment of money to redesign slash implement. I get that between the track owners and the series, no one is willing to make that goodwill investment for the safety of the drivers. Having reviewed the accident many times, two things stand out to me. First, despite a minor delta in the speed of the two cars, Wicken's car climbs on a race quite easily. Obviously, on ovals, this is the worst. Second, the tub did a commendable job, but still left Robert with a spinal injury. I acknowledge that a trip up into the fencing is going to result in the worst injuries. Glad Mike Conway is still with us. But remember that our beloved Mr. Bourdais didn't get into the fencing during his Indy 500 qualifying accident and he unfortunately suffered a pelvis injury. My question is this, with engine power due to increase and no action being taken on the wall-slash-fence structures, 
isn't it time to rethink the whole tub and side pod structure to prevent these injuries? Let's start here. I would say that the current IndyCar administration has placed just as high a priority of determining what happened, what caused whatever failures once Robert's car got up into the fencing as much as previous regimes have done with any of the major accidents. Dan Weldon's comes to mind, I believe, and I don't honestly remember where I saw it, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that there was a very comprehensive report on Dan's fatal accident, just from a vehicular standpoint, what did or did not happen. Uh, it's then what he was subjected to. I firmly believe that the current administration has done the same thing and placed the same emphasis on this for Robert's crash, where I think there might be a difference, just a thought, not saying this is a fact. I don't know if there's the same willingness to make that available as other crashes in the past, maybe prior to this administration. So, just say that I wouldn't necessarily say this has been placed on a back burner. I just think there might be a difference in willingness to then present this to the public. On that subject, we do live in an era where we expect to be given everything, see everything, tell, be told everything we want to know at all points in time. We live in a, we live in an age where, Nothing is secret, and anyone that doesn't tell us the thing that we want, it's a surprise. I think this might just be a case where IndyCar has said, you know, we could share this with the public, but that's not going to get us anywhere. These are things we need to learn internally, and if it's to change how this thing is mounted, add more carbon fiber material here, more honeycomb, strengthen this, fortify that, alter this thing, I think... The results of this have just been treated as an internal point of action, not so much of a media document to be presented. Other thing too here, you the point you raise, that being the increase in speed we expect with the horsepower that is we're told will be coming here in the next couple of years. I'm confident there are going to be efforts to make sure that while we're doing, you know, what are they going to qualify at? 232, 233 miles an hour, who knows, this year at Indy. Of course, we'd love to see some qualifying records broken with new, more powerful engines. In theory, when we get to a new chassis, that should be lighter for sure, because this current one is just, yeah, it's, it's a big old porky thing. We expect to see some bigger speeds, I think, in select events i also believe indycar is going to make sure that holy cow scary dangerous speeds are something that get governed and monitored could we get into the scenario you mentioned hey boy you know if we're already having folks getting up into the fence and flying and whatnot at the speeds we're doing could this be an even bigger problem without some sort of rethink on walls and fences and such I don't know if we're going to get to a place where tracks truly make these big investments to come up with something to handle these potential impacts. I do believe on the tub side pod structure and such that you mentioned. Yes, I definitely believe the next IndyCar will have the safest 
everything we've ever seen in terms of driver protection. That to me, there's no question that those steps will be made with the next chassis. I think that's going to be the most practical route that gets followed because it's the one thing IndyCar can control that it owns. It can say, Hey, vendor we've chosen who we expect to be Delara. These are the things we need to see happen to protect our drivers, knowing that in some instances they will be going five, 10, who knows how many miles per hour faster than they have with the previous tubs. So that's a thing they can control. Obviously they can't dictate what most tracks do with their fencing and whatnot, but I think we'll see that. As for the Robert information, again, I just struggle to see how that ever becomes public, but I wouldn't confuse its lack of public presentation as being any kind of diminished dedication on IndyCar's front to find out what happened and learn from it. I've heard I've heard a number of things. Uh, I heard about some things that failed, broke, and otherwise. Haven't seen the report, haven't been able to verify any of it, so that's why I don't know if I've ever mentioned any of that, but I will make sure to ask again, though, to see if they do have any plans on releasing anything. All right, down to the last couple here again. We're going to go to SGT Ravage. Do you know something about Buddy Lazier's son, Finn? Is he showing any promise? Promise, absolutely. Where Finn has maybe a harder road ahead is we haven't seen him on, say, the road to Indy the last couple of years, uh, multiple years of development and consistent uh, growth in a well-known, heavily, heavily competitive series, USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000, Indy Lights. It's been doing some other stuff, uh, club-level racing and smaller, uh, slower vehicles, I believe has been doing Atlantix or something uh, USF four something in that range, not bad stuff at all. But just if we're talking, are we going to find out if Finn Lazier could be the one uh, following in his father's footsteps at Indy or an Indy car? I don't know if I've seen or heard anything to tell me that he's standing out right now as a holy cow talent. I wouldn't put that against him though, or say that there's any judgment being made. I'd just say that until someone like Finn can jump into a recognized series where we know what is required to get to the front and then see him getting to the front, it's really hard to answer anything on promise. So I'm hoping they find the money for him to get onto that road to Indy and really fast track his development. So maybe we can have another second, actually what third generation, if we count buddy's dad, Bob in terms of IndyCar driving, uh, MC man 7890 asks, was Porsche the only quote hot lead? He says is a sales term, not the metal for a third engine manufacturer. I've heard of a fourth. I don't know of whether that manufacturer will manifest into a third manufacturer. I have heard of a fourth. I did mention a fourth. I read highly wise person on a comment section saying that this is all hot smoke i've been blowing out of my backside which is pretty normal uh yes there has been a fourth that has been discussed that i know of this year i also know that that manufacturer is looking very heavily at an imsa dpi program and i think that's going to be an issue that indycar faces more and more as both series 
We're talking DPI being the top level of IMSA. With them headed to DPI 2.0 in 2022, IndyCar heading in a similar direction with engine and chassis around that time, I just think there's going to be a lot of picking and choosing between manufacturers which one they want to go with. Throw in one other quick thing here since you mentioned Porsche, and I debated whether to include this in my opening before we went to our man Lee and then Chris. Might be frustrating. I know it's a little bit frustrating for me. There's nothing I want to do more than present black and white information. Porsche was looking. Porsche had meetings with IndyCar. Interest was expressed in joining as a third manufacturer. Some limitations were found. No plans, at least during those discussions, for a hybrid. And the interest on the brand's part definitely fleeting no Porsche heard all those things impeccable sources no question not talking about I heard from this guy who heard from another guy obviously I'm not going to get into sources no question about this being a fact also the fact that it was a topic of discussion and then came to a conclusion as a no we're not going to do that also a fact there was a proviso which i think i might have mentioned i don't know whether it was here in the podcast or in something that i wrote but that porsche is also known that known as a company that while making definitive decisions could very well change their mind the next day they do that so in terms of just presenting the status and state interest conversations decided not to do anything have heard, referring back to some impeccable sources, that not saying Porsche's back on, but that there might be another voice, another person in or around this topic that might have said, ah, let's not stop the conversations. Let's at least talk a little bit more. Does that mean there's a 5% chance of it happening now instead of zero? I don't know. 10%? 2%. Not sure. So black and white, love it when that's what we have. Might be a little bit frustrating to hear that there could be a little bit of gray area back and it might return straight <laughs> back to a black and white scenario. We're out. Who knows? Maybe it could pick up. I'm not there having those discussions, but just very interesting to hear that the, okay, yeah, yeah, we're not doing it. But, hey, maybe someone else within the greater hemisphere of uh, the organizations has taken things to a point where, ah, let's at least maybe have one more conversation. And I'll see if I hear anything else afterwards, but just thought I'd share that. I don't know if that's worth a tweet or writing about. I don't think so at all. I'm just sharing that as we try to provide status updates, not everything is deserving of a story. The fact that there is a glimmer of a possibility of a few percent chance of it not being completely dead, at least that's there. All right, so we are going to round up here with two questions. Mike Stoop says, what Indy 500 cars are on your Mount Rushmore? Mine are Penske's PC-23, a.k.a. the Beast, Jim Hall's Yellow Submarine, the McLaren M16, and the Lotus 56. Even though it didn't win, I picked the Lotus for its performance for 191 laps its innovation and its unique look. Uh, let's see. 
I would say 21-ish, 22. I always kind of forget the exact year, but Jimmy Murphy's Le Mans Grand Prix winning, Indy 500 winning Doozy Miller. Uh, that That is just the finest, finest of America for me. You mentioned a couple that are just absolute bucket list cars of mine as well. Um, what else? I mean, I would say 72 Eagle. Uh, good Lord. Uh, both the white Olsenite car and then also the blue as well, Uncle Bobby. I mean, that's just such an amazing and important, important car in the overall evolution of the sport. There is a number of Millers. Um, you know, they're 91 cubic inch machines. There's a number of Miller models that, yeah, they're just, it's, it's fine art, <laughs> fine art presented as an indie car. I'm trying to think what else comes to mind. Probably the Delara D12. I'm hoping some of you just spit coffee on your monitor or otherwise. Uh, no, uh, let's see what else, what else, what else? Uh, huge, huge, huge love and appreciation for Nigel Bennett's Penske PC-17, uh, the all-front row earning 1988 chassis. Rick Mears used in the beautiful Pennzoil colors to win the Indy 500. Just thought that car was glorious. There are a lot. Uh, I should probably spend more time really truly coming up with a definitive MP list of my favorite Indy cars. Uh, there are a lot of freak mobiles too that I loved, uh, but yeah, altogether, you know, going back to uh, Jimmy Murphy's 500 winner, just amazing. The fact that in year to year span was able to become the first American to win a European Grand Prix the year before uh, the Le Mans circuit turned into and was used for the 24 hours of Le Mans. That's certainly a huge one for me. Uh, definitely the late 20s, all throughout the 30s, you know, uh, Harry Miller's designs. I, I mean, there's a documentary there to be made. Uh, if I had the money, if someone presented me the money uh, to spend a year of my life uh, just going and capturing everything needed to do a documentary on that man, that to me is an unsung American hero for sure with many of the things that he did. And obviously there's so many folks, uh, Leo Goosens and Milt Drake, and I mean, we can run down the list. There's so many folks who were responsible for everything that Miller created, although he was the front man and often overly credited for doing everything. But yeah, pretty amazing stuff there. Gotta admit, I like the looks, of many of the roadsters, pretty things to look at just from a technical standpoint. Most don't do much for me because it was a really basic, basic formula. Uh, certainly fit the times, but didn't do much for me. After that, you know, we're talking turbines for sure. And yeah, I'd say the 60s in general, 60s, early 70s, I could probably come up with about 10 because it was certainly the Indy 500's richest vein of creativity, insanity, and rules? What rules? Uh, just loved it. All right, let's go to Henry Shelley to close out the questions for me and close out this week's episode. It says, with the added arrow to the wings at Indy, should we be expecting more overtakes? I think so, Henry. I definitely think so. The increase in front wing downforce options, not huge, 
the amount of options teams have to use in the race with the front wing extensions, as many as three additional gurney flaps bolted on as well, there's certainly the possibility of making more front downforce to help the cars from understeering and being so adversely affected in the arrow wash of the cars that they're trailing. The other thing too, and I would say equally as important here, is the work that Firestone has done in particular with front tires to create more grip. That was another thing last year where many drivers said issues with arrow insufficient downforce to really get close and make passes the way that we would want to and you know fans would want to see but there just was not enough grip from the front tires as well so i'd say come race day it's just good to know that teams have a number of options at the front of the car to make more downforce if that's what's needed keep in mind it's not really something at all that can be added or taken away during a pit stop in a timely manner So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch is did teams add too much and they are slower and or the things too pointy? Do they not add enough? And is there similar issues to last year? Whatever they decide to go race with, whatever they roll out for with, it's going to be on the car. Uh, The time it would take to unbolt the gurneys, whatever amount and make changes. Also to the rear of the car, there are a couple of gurneys that can be added to the back. Those are not things that are happening quickly in a pit stop at all. It'd actually be faster to remove the nose with a different gurney arrangement and just simply bolt those on and off, but that's still going to add crucial seconds to a pit stop. That would not be very favorable from a competitive standpoint. So that's certainly something to look forward to. Monitor that during the race, but also definitely folks are thinking that Firestone's work on the front tires is going to be a big contributor to improved passing opportunities all right thanks for all the great questions you sent in to me i know that some weeks depending on how many i get either just do them to open the show and then weeks like this where i have quite a few i just move them to the end so we can get to our guests first so thank you for sending in everything that you did hopefully we will see you on friday for our live podcast on the cooper tire stage in the infield in the fan zone with all that said i'm marshall pruitt This is Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.